And for the rest of you, let's turn to the book of Habakkuk. We are continuing our verse-by-verse study through this very interesting book. We're in Habakkuk 2, and by the grace of God, we're going to cover verses 5 down to 8. Habakkuk 2, verses 5 down to 8. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 4, just as I often do to get a running start, give you a little bit of the context here. Verse 4, Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, the reason I wanted to start there is because of that, that word, his, that possessive word, his soul, which is lifted up. Now, come to verse 5, yea, also, because he transgresseth by wine. There's a very high likelihood that the proud man from verse 4 is also being addressed in verse 5. However, as we go through the rest of this chapter, I think you'll see that God is focusing in on a particular proud man. But there's much to be said about that. Let's go through the verse little by little. Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine, he is a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell, and is as death, and cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. All right, so as I've mentioned, the he at the beginning of the verse could very well be the soul which is lifted up, but according to the context of Habakkuk, we're dealing with the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. That's kind of a synonym there. And the question that has come up is, God, you're going to use the Chaldeans to punish the wickedness of Judah. Okay, that's understandable but because we need to be punished. But those Chaldeans are horribly wicked people also, even worse than us. So, God, how could you use sinners worse than we to bring judgment on us? That seems like a conflict of interest. So God is now answering Habakkuk, don't worry, one day you're going to understand this completely, but this guy, this wicked man that I'm describing, I'm going to tell you now what kind of destruction is waiting for him. All right, so I think that the he, you could think of it as Nebuchadnezzar, right? I think he is a shining, maybe shining is the wrong word, but a great example of of a proud man in the Bible. Uh, If you are familiar with the book of Daniel, chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one that in that vision he had, there was a tree that gets cut down. You might remember that. And Daniel interpreted that to him to say, you're the tree and your kingdom has sprouted and blossomed and it's been very prosperous and, and now you're getting lifted up. And if you do not break off your sins by righteousness, if you don't quit that nonsense and start doing right, God's gonna cut you down. And a year later, Nebuchadnezzar walked out into his kingdom and said, look at this great kingdom that I have built. Look at what I have done. He took all the credit. He, as I say, maybe lack of a better term, shining example of a proud man. And God took his mind. You remember that story. He spent the next, it says, seven times passed over him. And even in the history books, you'll find that for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. And he was out there grazing in the fields, eating grass, and everything you read in Daniel 4 came to pass and is historically verified. So this certainly sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. After Nebuchadnezzar, you have his son, evil Merodach. You find him mentioned in Chronicles and in Kings. And then the, the next king after him was Belshazzar. 
Now, you might remember, how many of you remember that name from Daniel 5, Belshazzar? Everybody remember that? He had this big party and was drinking wine out of the temple uh, cups and praising the gods of gold and silver and iron and wood and stone and just a very wicked man. Did you know for years and years, people said that that was a mistake in the Bible? Daniel 5, they said there was no such man as Belshazzar, no historical records. They said whoever wrote Daniel just made this guy up. The whole story fabricated until a few decades ago when the archaeologist dug up the tablets and went, there's Belshazzar's name. Sure enough, he was installed as king for a very short time right when the kingdom fell. So this description of of the wickedness in verse 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter, it does fit Nebuchadnezzar. But also evil Merodach, also Belshazzar. I think what's being talked about here is just the king, the office of the king of Babylon. Whoever it was occupying that office, they were wicked men. Now, as we go through this, I, I want you to know that we are focusing on the king of Babylon. However, what is being said here can also be very true for any wicked man. So there is a practical lesson for how God views wickedness and what will eventually happen to anybody that is uh, busy with habitual sin like this. All right, so let's look back at verse 5 a little bit here. Because he transgresseth by wine. Now immediately that brings to my mind Belshazzar, Daniel 5, as we just mentioned. He has this big party. He, he tells his servants to bring forth the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. Remember, they took all of that stuff uh, when, when they besieged the city and when they burned it down. They took all the gold and silver cups and took them like a, as a prize of war to Babylon. Now he's saying, bring them forth. Let's put our wine in that. Let's praise the gods of gold and silver. He was mocking the God of Israel. So to say he transgresseth by wine certainly fits Belshazzar. However, I'm sure that you can immediately appreciate how this would fit any wicked man because so many people transgress by wine. Now, the transgression that happens by wine, there's, we could really zoom in on this and talk about numerous wickedness, wicked things, but if I can try to generalize it a little bit, when somebody spends too long with wine, it impairs their judgment. It lowers inhibitions and it it causes them to make decisions in that moment that they normally wouldn't make. And that's the problem. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Right, Ephesians 5? Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. What's so dangerous? You start drinking that wine, and all of a sudden, it changes the way you think. It, it skews your judgment. Let me show you a verse or two on this. Come to the book of Proverbs, if you would, please. He transgresseth by wine. Proverbs chapter 31. Now, forgive me, I'm not going to go into a long... This isn't a lesson about wine. I just want to mention a thing or two about it. Uh, I've taught on it before, and I believe you know where I stand on this. The Apostle Paul, he told Timothy, drink no longer water... But take a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmity. So wine in and of itself is not a sin. Not the wine itself. But how you use the wine, the purpose behind it. If you're taking it as medicine or even as a preventative 
right? That would be applicable in the way Paul talked to Timothy there. That's one issue. That's a separate thing than what we're talking about. We're talking about somebody that's not taken for health purposes, but rather to dull the senses so that they no longer think about what they're going through and can't make clear decisions. Proverbs 31, uh, let's start reading in verse 3. Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. This was a nickname for Solomon, his mother gave him. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Why? Here's the problem, verse 5. Lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. They have responsibilities. Do you see that? They're in charge of making decisions that affect other people's lives. They cannot have that judgment skewed or blurred by alcohol. So she's warning him, don't give yourself to that. Verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 6, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. You can see the medicinal aspect of this. If the person's in horrible pain, then that's a different use. But if the king's just drinking this for pleasure, and I know she's speaking to a king here, but you see the applicability. Anybody that's in charge of making decisions that affect other people's lives, they need to be able to think clearly. They need to be able to remember what God has said. Don't forget the law. And when your mind is jumping all over the place because the alcohol is controlling it instead of the Lord, you're going to end up in the wrong place. All right, so come back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse number 5. Yea, also because he transgresseth by wine. So I'm going to say that whichever king it was of Babylon, he would get drunk and then start making decisions about which country to attack. He would get excited. Go, man, now, now, that I, now that I don't feel any prick of my conscience, I can make these plans to destroy other countries and complete genocides. And it wouldn't bother him. He transgressed by wine. He is a proud man. We've spoken about how Nebuchadnezzar fit that. He thought he could do anything. Thought no one could stop him. The next part, neither keepeth at home. Neither keepeth at home. Well, this is very true of the Babylonians because after they would conquer one land, rather than go home and build up their own country, fortify it, create an infrastructure, agriculture, finances, create a system within their own country that would sustain their own people. Nebuchadnezzar and the kings that followed said, let's go conquer another land and another land and another land. And to be very honest, listen, I, I am... I got to be careful how I word this. I'm proud to be an American. Okay, is it okay if I feel that way? I'm proud to be an American. I think there's a lot of wonderful things about America. However, I'm not blind to all of her problems. I don't understand why America feels the need to constantly get involved in everybody's business. It's one thing to see an atrocity going on somewhere else in the world and say, we have the resources to step in and make a difference. We can put a stop to whatever that wickedness is, right? Hitler's trying to take over the world. Let's go help out in this battle, that kind of thing. I understand that. But when two other countries are fighting and it's only affecting them, why is America going there and then not leaving the country after the war is over but sucking the oil out of it? Anyway, that's another story. But it, it is confusing. Why not just stay at home and concentrate on the problems you have at home? 
right? And Nebuchadnezzar always and the kings that follow, just looking where else can we conquer, just greedy, covetous, never satisfied with what they had. Now you can see how this would also tie in to an individual, right? The practical lesson behind this. It's a very sad story that a lot of kids grow up with a dad who lives at home. He sleeps at home, but he's not at home. The dad is, as soon as he knocks off from work, he's, in his mind, he's provided, right, the necessary funds. He's put food on the table. He pays for the rent and the bills and, you know, the electricity's on, and now it's his time to play. And all, now, I, listen, guys, I'm not against having hobbies and hanging, you know, spending a little bit of time with friends, but when you have a family, you've got to prioritize that. And you do not want to get to the point where your kids are graduating or matriculating and maybe going off to university and now you finally feel the need to get involved in their lives. I I don't want to say it's too late because it's never too late. At least you're getting started. But wow, the memories you have missed out on. While you have the opportunity, make some memories with those people in your home I know from experience, being able to look back at the times that I spent with the kids, laughing, enjoying them, telling stories, hearing their stories, those things never leave you. Make the most of those things. It says, neither keepeth at home, and in verse 5, who enlargeth his desire as hell. Interesting analogy. When, when Habakkuk, now he's writing on, you know, as the secretary here for God, God's giving these words, saying he's enlarging his desire as hell to liken it to that. You know, in the book of Isaiah, it does say hell enlarges itself. Hell gets bigger and bigger because no matter how many people die and go to hell, there's always space for it. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Let me show you a couple of verses about hell. Now, notice in verse 5, There's two things here used as an analogy. The desire is enlarged as hell and is as death. Death and hell. You always see those two things together in the Bible, don't you? I said, let's say often. Those two things go together. Come to the book of Proverbs. Hold your place in Habakkuk. Proverbs chapter 20. Uh, I'm sorry, 27. Proverbs 27, verse 20. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20. The Bible says here, hell and destruction are what? Never full. Because once something gets destroyed, something else will get rebuilt in its place. You can destroy it again. Destruction can just go on and on and on. Hell and destruction are never full. What's the analogy? So the eyes of man are never satisfied. He just wants more and more and more. What's the picture? Just like hell, just like destruction. It's, now, it's interesting that the, you can understand from this verse, beholding something beautiful is not wrong. But when we're talking about the eyes of man never being satisfied, this is a greedy man. This is covetous. Everything he sees, ooh, I want that. I want that. Now, guys, the world has figured this out. And, and again, I, I speak cautiously because advertising in and of itself is not wrong. It's okay to let somebody else know that you have a business or you can provide a service, but you, you can see how the advertising industry plays on the covetousness of mankind. 
they make it, you know, pretty, they, they say sex sells. So we know what will attract you, what will not only bring your eye to our picture, but keep your eye on our picture, and we'll get our message into your head. We'll get our, our, our little jingle or our slogan bouncing around in your head. And everywhere we go, up and down the streets, we can't escape it, can we? You go up and down the streets, it's billboard after billboard. When you walk through the mall, it's, you know, this sign here, this poster here. It's all around us. Now, now, that's just part of the world we live in. It's our responsibility not to tear down every picture, billboard, and poster, right? Please, please don't go there with it. It's our responsibility to guard our hearts. And instead of covetousness, replace that with contentment. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. That is the greatest thing you'll ever achieve or gain in your life. To make a deposit into the, into the eternal state of your heart that I'm happy with God. I have God. That's, that's enough for me. Uh, while we're in Proverbs, get chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15. <clears throat> Verse 11, Proverbs 15 and 11, the Bible says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So God sees these things going on. Now look at the analogy. How much more than the hearts of the children of men? So our eyes and our hearts are likened to hell and destruction. Isn't that a commentary on mankind? <laughs> Everywhere we look, we see it, and we go, ooh, I got to have that. I want to try that. And guys, you know this is a connection in the Bible between the eyes and the heart, right? You, you, you can lust after something or someone in your heart, and that affects, the re it affects how you behave after that. Come back to the, well, you know, you keep holding Habakkuk. Can I turn you over to John chapter 4 real quick? John chapter 4. I want to show you the antidote to this. John 4. The cousin of contentment, I think, would be thankfulness. The next time you find yourself maybe dissatisfied with your lot in life, I don't have enough. I don't have... I don't have as much as I'd like. Rather than focusing and looking at the things you don't have, take a moment to look at what you do have and start thanking God for what He has provided in your life. I'm not to say that, there, let's not pretend that you don't have needs. We get that. But, but if you're not careful, and if you're not thankful, all of a sudden you're just focusing on those things you don't have and that thankfulness escapes you. John 4 Jesus said in verse 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. Speaking of the world. You can go down to the mall today and buy everything you want. That's what the world has to offer. And it will make you happy for a short time. But if you want true contentment, verse 14, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He said, just take one drink and you'll never thirst again. In another place, he talks about, I'm the bread of life, and if you take this bread of life, you'll never hunger again. What I want to say here is Jesus is satisfying. 
right? We even have a song in our hymn book, I'm satisfied. Jesus satisfies my longings, right? That's what we sing. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You hear in that verse that Jesus is not ignorant of the fact that we do need things. But he also knows the proper order. Put your focus first on God and his righteousness, his kingdom, and then the things, yes, they'll come, but that's not what's going to fulfill you, satisfy, and fill all the gaps in your life. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. What do I have, God? I don't have money to pay the rent. My house is falling apart. I don't have shoes for my kids. I don't have food on the table. The Bible says, be content with such things as you have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If things can come right with God, God will help you get those other things to come right. Yes. Yes, but that focus has to be on God. Now come back to Habakkuk 2. Of course, the wicked man is not trying to find any fulfillment in God. He finds no satisfaction in doing the will of God. It's all about getting the next thing, getting the next thing, conquering the next land. Now, listen, we're talking about kings conquering other countries. Shrink that down to fit whatever the situation is in your life, right? I, I doubt anybody here has any plans to conquer some other land. I, I doubt you've drawn up the plans to conquer Lesotho or <laughs> anything like that, right? But maybe you're thinking, if I could just conquer that promotion, if I could just land that tender, if I could just get this or that, whatever that this or that is, I'm not saying it's bad to have those goals. You can even pursue them. But do not exchange them for performing the will of God. That has to be what ultimately defines you and offers you satisfaction verse 5 at the end it says it cannot be satisfied you see that he is as death and cannot be satisfied so no matter how much he gets it's never enough he goes and he conquers the next land you know what he says ah this is what i've been planning for for six months for two years this is what i've been ah, i finally achieved it wow you know, I thought, I thought I'd feel better after I finally reached this landmark. I thought my life would be just as much as it could be. You know, it turns out this isn't as great as I thought. Well, you know what? Let's go conquer another land. And if I could just be invited to this party, man, if I could just let myself loose, have a night of pure uh, pleasure. Man, if I could just spend time with my friends, this would be great. And then they get to the party, they drink, they smoke, they do whatever, they dance, they, and this is great. They let their flesh just run wild. And the next morning they wake up sick, head spinning, go, man, that wasn't as great as I thought. It's never as satisfying. It says here, but gathereth unto him all nations, and heapeth unto him all people. So no matter how much he gets, he always wants more. Verse 6, shall not all these, that is all these nations, shall not all these take up a parable against him and a taunting proverb against him? A taunting proverb is, I want to say mocking. This is true, but it's more than just mocking him. It is provoking him. It's wagging the finger almost like we told you so or how dare you taunting him with this. And he says, one of these days, all these nations that Babylon has conquered is going to rise up and say, nah, see, you weren't as great as you thought. 
you didn't have it figured out as good as you thought. Now, what starts in verse 6, there are five woes for the rest of the chapter. You can see in verse 6, and say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. Just for the sake of of the five woes, look at verse 9. Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. Verse 12, woe to him that buildeth a town with blood. Verse 15, woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. Uh, verse 19, woe unto him that saith to the wood, awake, and so forth. So five woes. Now what is a woe? The word woe, it means destruction, misery, great sorrow, or distress. This is often the word that is used when God is pronouncing judgment against an individual or a nation. And that's certainly what's happening here. So God is saying that not only will God bring judgment, but these other nations will rise up and say, now it's your turn to be punished. Great sorrow and misery be upon you. So verse 6, they'll say, woe to him that increaseth that which is not his. All right, now say so he's taking treasure to increase his own treasure. He is not using the resources within his own country to build a viable financial system, you know, and make proper money. He's going off and plundering and stealing and other, you know, conquering other nations, taking their treasures to increase his own. So they're increasing that which is not his. These treasures that he's amassed, they weren't his own to begin with. And then the question comes in, how long? Now there's two ways to take that. Number one, how long are you going to be able to hold on to these treasures? That's a good question. That's a good question for any thief to consider. <laughs> Dr. Ruckman used to tell us all, all the time, every thief likes to put his money in a good bank. That make, that's deep. Every thief wants to put his money in a good bank. You know why? He doesn't want anybody to steal his money. That thief doesn't want what he did to happen to him. Every man that cuts corners at work and cheats and pays under the table, corruption, all that stuff, he doesn't want corruption happening to him. Those same business practices, it's okay if he does it, but man, don't try it with me. Don't cheat me. He increases that which is not his. How long? How long is this going to hold up? Because if that's the way you're doing business, eventually, as they say, what comes around goes around. That ship that you sent out to sea, it's eventually going to come home and port. It's going gonna, it's gonna to arrive right back where you sent it out from. And you're going to see for the rest of this chapter this overarching theme, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Babylon, if, if this is the way you want to do it, you want to build your riches by taking other people's treasures, things that aren't yours and building up what's not yours, well, how long is that going to hold up for you? Because eventually somebody's going to say, enough with this. We're tired of the way you're treating us. Now it's your turn. Now we're going to take from you. Since you've been taking from everybody else, now we're going to take for you. How long? How long are you going to hold on to the riches? I think the other way you can think of this is how long can you keep up with your own plan? Because your plan is to go out and conquer every nation. How long do you think this plan is going to work? Eventually, this plan will stop working. Eventually, you'll meet your match. You'll try to fight against some nation, and it won't work out, and you'll be conquered. So either way, how long? 
Maybe we can even think that the nations are asking this towards God. God, how long are you going to let them continue doing this? It could be that. Whichever way, I think all three of those possibilities are appropriate. At the end of verse 6, And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. That's interesting. The Hebrew words behind this kind of lend themselves to this thought. The, the, the thick clay. It's about taxation. And making, can I say, um, upside-down business deals where you charge an incredible amount of interest on the loan. So instead, and this, this would be true of, of a bank, this would be true of a country overtaxing their people, taking from them their hard-earned money to build up the government, but the government is just siphoning the money instead of using it to fix potholes and run the trash trucks and bring water to the location. They just build houses and houses and more houses and cars and limousines all of that and eventually the idea is how long are the people going to put up with this eventually that that's not going to hold up that system will not fly now what's interesting that that's the, maybe what you could dig from the hebrew behind that and it would certainly fit the context because nebuchadnezzar was guilty of that overtaxing the people when you really look at, at the system God set up, God's system is by far the best system because taxes are necessary. Amen. Somebody's got to pay these people that do the municipality work. I'm not against taxes. But God set the system up 10%. Do any of you pay 10% taxes here? Is that how the system works in South Africa, 10%? Okay, all I see are laughs and people doing this with their head. So God's system works pretty well, right? I, I don't know what the percentage is that you pay, but here at the church, we're happy with 10%, <laughs> right? We, we, and we're not going to do it at the end of verse 6. We're not going to do it, take your money just to get fat. When it says he ladeth himself with thick clay, he's taking these treasures not to use them to serve the people. He's taking it just to make himself fat. Now, you, you say, how does, how does the, the phrase there, lading, to lade is to be burdened down with something, to, to be made heavy, right? Remember, Jesus used this word, come unto me, all you that, late, uh, that uh, labor and are heavy laden. So you're carrying a lot of weight. That's what it means to be laden. So they're lading themselves with thick clay. What did God make Adam out of? Clay. clay. So what are they doing? Adding a layer Adding a layer, adding a layer. Let me show you a couple verses. Get Job chapter 15. Please do not think that this is any indictment on somebody that has put on a couple kgs. We're talking about people that steal money, whether it's white-collar, blue-collar crime, whatever the case is, and then use that not to pay their bills or to feed their family. That's a different situation. Still not right, but we can understand it. But stealing just to make themselves fat, that's what we're talking about. Job chapter 15. Look with me at verse 27. I'm just showing you a handful of verses here. You'll actually find this quite a few times in the Bible where when you have a description of the wicked, you will also find an indictment against how they're putting on weight. And it's because they're using their wickedness just to make their life bigger and bigger. Uh, Job 15 verse 27. Speaking about the wicked, it says, he, or Because he covereth his face with 
fatness and maketh callops of fat on his flanks. If you've ever wondered where the verse is in the Bible for love handles, there it is. <laughs> callops of fat. I'm just calloping over. If we can make, make a different name, callops all over. That's old English for saying love handles. That's what that is. But that's part of God's description of the wicked. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Psalms. Get Psalms if you would. Psalm chapter 17. That's the next book over. Psalm 17 and verse 10. Same idea. Context is talking about the wicked. Verse 10 says, They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. So I, we're, just, we're not taking time to look at the entire context. I'm just showing you how these things often go together. Now look at Ecclesiastes 5. Ecclesiastes 5. When I got to Malawi years ago, people would come up to me and they were trying to give me a compliment. And my church members would say, Hey, hey, brother Mike, yes, you look fat. Coming from America in my culture, I, that's, that's not cool, man. You, you can't come up to somebody and go, Hey, you're fat. <laughs> Whap! <laughs> that's a, stop it. <laughs> and certainly do not go to my wife with that. <laughs> don't, don't even try. I will defend her honor in this case. <laughs> But they say, hey, hey, pasta, hey, you're fat. You're looking fat. And this happened four or five times. And because it's a new culture, I don't want to just jump, you know, out of anger and, and straighten that out. But I was working out. I was trying not to be fat. And then they say, hey, you're looking fat. I thought, I finally asked one, what do you mean by fat? Do you mean strong? They went, no, fat. <laughs> okay, well, it's not what I thought it could be. And then I started digging a little deeper. I said, well, why? To me, that's not a good thing. Why, why do you guys keep telling me? They say, it looks like you're doing well in life. They said, to us, and I, I asked one guy, I said, what, what do you want out of life? What are your goals? He said, ah, pasta, first thing, I want to be very fat. Very fat. <laughs> really? That's like on our list from America. That's very. That's what you want to take off the list, right? You, you want to fix that part of the list. And I asked him, what's the point? He said, ah, pastor, if we are fat, it means we have enough. It means we are eating and we are not lacking. So I want to be fat. And then he explained it further. If other people see that you're fat, it looks as if you know what to do in life. And then they will respect you and honor you. But if you're skinny, you obviously don't have enough. Who wants to go to you for advice because you can't even take care of yourself? And I thought, yes, I'm fat. <laughs> I, it took me a little while to get used to that, right? Ecclesiastes 5, look at verse 11. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. <laughs> The more you get, the more you eat. The more you eat, the more there is to you. <laughs> you grow. <clears throat> what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? So Solomon's point is, guys, you're, you're gathering together all this wealth and you're getting bigger and bigger, but what's the end goal here? What's the point? Just to look at what you have. And you're really not accomplishing much. All right, so come back to Habakkuk now. Verse number seven. <clears throat> And he brings this first woe to a, a close here. 
shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite thee and awake that shall vex thee and thou shalt be for booties unto them. Now, booty, isn't that like what you uh, call your brother? Like if you have a younger brother, you say, hey, booty, right? Okay, this is a different booty. <laughs> In America, booty is something very different. Did you know that? Yes? We, we, does everybody know? I'll teach you something this morning, all right? <laughs> that is the booty. <laughs> that's, a, that's a booty. <laughs> so this word can take on many, many meanings. Booties is like spoils of war, that type, the way it's used here in the Bible. All right, thou shalt be for booties unto them. Because thou hast spoiled, verse 8, thou hast spoiled many nations, all the remnant of the people shall spoil thee because of men's blood and for the violence of the land and of the city and of all that dwell therein. So we can sum this up. I've quoted the verse for you earlier. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The judgment is being pronounced that what you guys have been doing for so long, eventually it's going to come back to bite you. That's the, verse, that's the word in verse 7. It's going to come back to bite you. And this is precisely what happened to Babylon. Daniel 5 gives us the account of the fall of that nation, that uh, kingdom rather. And Belshazzar is having this big party, the handwriting on the wall, many, many tackle person, Daniel interprets it, the kingdom is finished, and wouldn't you know it, Belshazzar says, Daniel, you're promoted. A lot of good that promotion does, right? There was like five minutes left in the kingdom. Daniel just said, your kingdom's finished. All right, you're promoted. Well, big deal, because right after that, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian come in and conquer Babylon and take it over. Take your Bible, look at Isaiah chapter 45. Let's finish up over here. Exactly what God said would happen. They thought everything was fine. They thought nobody, nobody could ever penetrate our great wall. And the walls of Babylon was one of the finest achievements of the ancient world. I mean, to this day, there are still writings about that wall. They thought nobody could penetrate it. Cyrus found a way. And it was actually prophesied almost 200 years before it happened how he would find a way in. But see, when you're proud and lifted up and you're not paying attention to what God says, you just ignore the one weakness that God said you have. <laughs> Isaiah 45 and 1, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings. Daniel 5. That's what happened to Belshazzar. When he saw the handwriting on the wall, his knees began to knock. His, his loins were loosed. To open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Every day, all the time, Babylon had their gates shut. Und under the ground, under the water, they'd shut the gates so nothing could penetrate. This one night, they left the gates open. Because the Persian army had made noise outside, and the king said, well, go out and check. And when they went out to check, they left the gates open. The one time. Verse 2, I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And that's what the Persians did. They cut down those bars and marched into the city. Verse 3, I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by name and the God of Israel. O almost 150 years before Cyrus was born, God named him and said, I know 
the name of the king of Persia that will conquer the, Babylons, or the Babylonians. He says, I'm going to give him the treasures of darkness. Babylon had been stealing treasure from other nations, storing it up secretly. No one will ever find it. Cyrus marches in in a way the, Babylons, the Babylonians thought they couldn't do, and then God shows them there's the treasure, and they get it all. Everything they had saved up, gone. Guys, this is precisely what will happen. This is precisely what will happen to a man who lays up his treasures on earth and not in heaven. One day, when this earthly life is over, you can't take it with you. You leave it all behind. You think, well, I'm hiding it. God, God knows where you hid it. The only safe place to, hide, to lay up that treasure is in heaven. It's the only way to hang on to something for eternity. Let's all stand, if you would, please. Father, thank you for the lessons we've learned from this passage today. Help us, God, to be thankful and content. Lord, you have given us so much. You have spoiled us. Yet, God, the greatest thing you've ever given us is your Son, your eternal presence dwelling with us. Help us never to take that for granted. Bless our fellowship. Thank you for the sunshine outside. Bless the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, you guys enjoy that, that sunshine.